This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Total Saints Podcast, episode 13. We're the dedicated podcast going to the heart of all things Saints. My name is Ben Stanfield, at Ben Stanners from Twitter, and as ever, I'm joined by the voice of constructive neutrality, Adam Leach, at Adam Leach Sport, from the Southern Daily Echo. Adam, got over yesterday yet? Oh, just about. I was pretty grateful, actually. After the game, I thought, I'm really, really pleased that we're not recording this on a Saturday night and that I've got 24 hours to uh, think through some constructive things to say and, and that I was able to write my uh, match report uh, on Sunday morning rather than Saturday night uh, it was very very nice to actually be able to uh, chill out and I, f- I feel like I've got a constructive head on tonight as well so um, hopefully we can try and pick a few positives out of uh, a pretty sorry result. Absolutely that's good to hear I think I'm the same as you I, I sort of sat down last night after my dinner and uh well, I, I could think of a few words that didn't involve expletives, but I think actually 24 hours on, I feel almost um, sort of, you know, refreshed and ready to have a damn good chat about everything, really. But there, there we go. Um, and I'm also delighted to say we're joined by Glenn Delacour, um, pro- probably one of the uh, poshest sounding Saints fans that we've got, I think, uh, but certainly by name, Glenn, anyway. But uh, you, you may know Glenn from Twitter. He's at L1-10, League 1-10. Um, Glenn, for, for those that don't know you, I'm sure there's, there's not many, but can you give us a quick introduction about you and your background following slash a suffering Saints? It all started just before the 1976 um, FA Cup final. Uh, my dad was and was and still is a Saints fan. And he took me to my first game uh, it, just before the 1976 Cup final. Ironically, it was at Fratton Park. Um, and we won 1-0. And it kind of went from there, really. We won the Cup, of course, about two months later. So seven-year-old me saw my team win a trophy within the first sort of couple of months of me supporting them. So naturally, I thought we must be the best team ever and we're going to win a trophy every year. And I'm still waiting 40-odd years later. So, uh, so that's, that's where it started. 
much like my wife actually. She, um, I managed to get her into following Saints from about 2010. So she's seen two promotions, a, a Wembley win. I mean, it's, I, I don't think understands the word relegation or anything like that, to be honest. So yeah, it's all right, all right for some, isn't it? But uh, but there we go. And and your your blog site, Glenn, because I know one of the things that um, has, has always kept me entertained is your blog site. And I know many Saints fans will will read it. I know it's the it's, it's constantly being spoken about on Saints web and things like that. But uh, what what's your blog site just for people that uh, want to go and have a read? www.league1-10.blogspot.com It started in 2009. I was working away from home uh, quite a bit. I was working in the uh, Republic of Ireland in Dublin and the, the choices of the evening were basically go to the pub or, or not go to the pub. And I, I was going to the pub far too often and I thought I, I better try and do something constructive with my time. Uh, the Libras had just come in. The club had just been bought. And you know, it just seemed like the start of something. So I thought, I'll start writing this, not not knowing it was going to become the, the sort of monster it's become and still going eight or nine years later or whatever it is. So, uh, so yeah, it, like all things, it kind of it kind of started as just, just a laugh, really, and uh, I never actually expected anyone to read it. And it's, uh, it's, much, more, uh, it's much more difficult now uh, knowing that people are going to read it, and it's also been very very difficult to write the last seven or eight months because you feel like i'm saying things over and over again but there you go it's, it's funny you say that because i think adam and i will probably agree it's the same with the podcast i think it started out as a bit of fun but uh, we uh, yeah i think you're conscious that word is spreading and more and more people listen to it which as i, as I mentioned before we're obviously very grateful for but i think likewise uh, certainly with saints playing the way they are at the moment you tend to find yourself talking the, i think the word identity comes up every every week doesn't it adam i think so i think so and trust me it's my experience is much much easier and nicer to write when things are going right about a club when things are going well than when they're not going well because uh you you become in the firing line yourself when everything becomes fair game and everybody's frustrated as whereas when things are going well you just sort of ride along on the crest of that wave as whereas when it gets difficult that's when it's uh yeah that's when you have to think very hard about what you uh, what you commit to paper it's, it's actually the, it's actually the worst time now um you know because when we in the league one days especially when we were first starting in league one um we had some sort of pretty average players and they, they were genuinely funny, some of them. And even though I've got a lot of respect for Paul Watton and what he had, what he achieved in the game with his uh, with the uh, uh, shall we say limited talent that he had, players like him used to used to crack me up when he, he launched into a tackle from a different postcode and things like that. And we we used to laugh at things that were genuinely not very good. Whereas we we've moved on from that now as a club, and you know it, it's tough now because. I think there's this feeling that things should just be better than they are at the moment. Interesting how far Saints have come in a short space of time, and obviously we'll we'll go on to talk about the the Burnley game. The, the other thing is people may or may not be able to hear. Um, we're recording this 5th of November, 7:30 on a 5th of November is probably not ideal. I've certainly got a fireworks show going on in front of me. At least there's been some fireworks this weekend. Certainly not involved with the football. I think Glenn as well. So obviously we apologise for any background noise, but I'm sure they're very um, very beautiful fireworks that you can visualise when you're listening to this. Um, anyway, on to the episode of the podcast. Um, we're going to pick the bones out of a frankly poor home defeat to a thoroughly well-managed Burnley side yesterday. Also, we're going to look ahead to the Liverpool game after the international break, which I think for most Saints fans has come just at the right time because it gives us two weeks of not having to worry about Saints. I would add, if you're looking for a complete and utter freak out over the way things are at St Mary's currently, then probably not the right podcast for you. We're going to try and be a bit more constructive and honest instead. Um, certainly that's the way that we try to do these podcasts, but I can feel that Glenn certainly is chomping at the bit to get talking on the Total Saints podcast, episode 13.
Glenn, where to start on this then? Look, no swearing as we mentioned, but before we chat about some of the specifics, what did you make of the game overall yesterday? It was a funny one. It, it's a game that we could have actually won two or three nil. I feel we ha- we had a couple of chances, you know, to score goals, but in the end, the last twenty minutes is kind of all I can remember because of how shockingly awful it was. We all knew what Burnley were going to do. There was an article on the Daily Echo that someone wrote about we're going to have an aerial bombardment because they've got, I think it's three strikers, is it? Wood, Barnes and Vokes, who were all six, or were all six foot two, six foot three. And Deutsch made a, a substitution to put uh, two strikers up front. And we just fell to bits. We completely fell to bits. And um, the folly of not picking the defender that we bought specifically to deal with aerial bombardments just came home to roost and it was it was just horrible really um and i, I kind of left the ground with a kind of resigned you know well that was dreadful again um but when you when you do look back at it you know we had, we had a couple of chances at the end of the first half and uh, redmond had one and yoshida had one from the corner that was half cleared but we you know we didn't really put the the keeper under a a great amount of pressure, but the keeper did well with what with what he had to do. Adam, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it was a pretty fair summary. Uh, all in all, I mean, I, I kind of have sort of vaguely similar emotions to I think what what Ben's uh, hinting at with his answer there, and that there were some positives, and there were actually some very very small signs of progress in amongst uh, in amongst it all. There was some uh, better attacking play. I thought they tried to, um, knowing that Burnley were going to be very compact, they actually tried to get the ball out wide uh, for periods of the game. They tried to get round the outside, which is something that we've been talking long, uh, long and hard about, the fact that they haven't been doing that this season. Uh, they haven't even uh, at times looked like they were uh, t- intend to do it, uh, whether that's deliberate or otherwise. Some good movement and some good chances created, especially either side of half-time. I thought they looked pretty dangerous, but then ultimately you come away and you think, well, okay, some very, very small signs of progress. And if it's only very small signs of progress, then you really need the results backing up. And obviously losing 1-0 at home to Burnley is not a good result, irrespective of where Burnley may find themselves in the table at this exact moment in time. It's not uh, it's not a good result. And <clears throat> we uh, obviously talked up the context of these four games between the international breaks the the three home matches very winnable home matches and the uh and the away game of brighton as well we talked probably about the need for in an ideal world 10 points out of those and there's five points and one win and that's that is just uh that is just below par and i think that i'm sure we'll come on to talk about it but obviously the the fear is um what waits around the corner now with 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 these uh a lot of very winnable fixtures gone. 11 games into the season, seven of them at home, only one top six team played. Um, this yeah. this was the easy part of the season, to be frank, uh, do, and it's not gone that well. I do worry when Pellegrino said after the Brighton game that he wanted to have 17 points, I think it was, he said. Um, he wanted to have 17 points after the first 10 games. Well, to me, at the moment, you know, if we're serious about doing anything this year... We should have about 22 points, which is the same number as Chelsea have got, and they're fourth in the league. So it's all very well saying, well, we're in, you know, mid-table in the league, but we've underachieved horribly in these first 11 games, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, when you look at the table, we are four points above the relegation zone. Obviously, 
we don't need to start pressing panic alarms right now because we've still got, what, 27 games to go. But just, just before we move on, Adam, I mean, serious question. Saints are in a relegation fight at the moment, yeah? Well, they're in no more of a relegation fight than the very vast majority of the teams in the Premier League. So, I mean, that the, if you take out the top six, who, as it stands, are, as you would expect, the top six to finish at the end of the season then pretty much this season, especially as Everton aren't running away with seventh and Nora Southampton, who would probably be your two favourites for that position, then everybody between seventh and 20th is, first and foremost, got to be concerned with getting the 40 points uh, to make sure they stay in the league. So in that respect, yes. Are they actually in a relegation fight right now? Uh, no. Right now they're not because of where they are in the table. My fear is that if they're not very, very careful, then it won't be very long until they are. Because with the fixtures they've got to come up yeah. uh, very soon after this international break, it's possible they could fall quickly. Um, and, and when you look at how many games they've got to play before the turn of the year and playing all of the top six, five of those away from home, it's not. it wouldn't even need what you would consider a bad run. Because losing to the top, you know, top five away from home wouldn't be a bad run. That would just be kind of what you'd expect most teams in the league to do. But if that if that transpired and then the other games you've got, then you've got a few winnable looking home games in there. You've got Everton, you've got Leicester, uh, you've got Huddersfield and you've got to go to Bournemouth. Well, there's potential 12 points there. But if you didn't take 10 out of that 12, for example, then you probably are going to be looking pretty nervously over your shoulder come the turn of the year. And I think it's that... I don't feel they're technically in a relegation battle now, but it's that wider context because the uh, I don't think that they will end up relegated. I don't think it will, it will get this far, but nonetheless, there are those just beginning to think of those creepy throwbacks to the relegation season where all those winnable home matches early on came and went without the, the necessary points. Saints were not really in a relegation battle at that point because they'd still picked up enough points to kind of be clinging into lower mid-table. But then when the harder games came, um, obviously things went badly wrong. And in the second half of the season, despite I know the fact that Harry's not Mr. Popular around Southampton, which I completely get, but he actually didn't do too bad a job. But the fixtures he was left with to try and get the points to keep them up were, were pretty hellish, really. And though it's not exactly the same mirror image of fixtures, really, there are, there are some, some parallels about wasting your opportunities early in the year to get the points. And at the very least, I think the uh, disappointing thing is that we've talked about seventh being up for grabs this year. With a great run, it still could be. Saints could still get themselves into contention, but it's going to have to be a really great run because they're going to have to beat perhaps teams like Chelsea and Man City away from home to contend with that. And I think the sad thing is that it, if they can't do that, then you know, obviously the negative is potential they could get sucked in. But at the very least... This season is already 11 games in, descended into, at best, mid-table mediocrity and already out of the League Cup in the first round. It's not exactly uh, what the doctor ordered for Saints, having decided they need to get rid of the manager last year because everything was too boring. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the relegation season because I've, I've got that on my notes as well. The reason we got relegated that season, in my view, is that we sat Sturrock, was it, after two games? Yeah. And then we gave Steve Wigley the job and he had 18 games and he was not up for it. And it was very, very obvious from about three games in, he was not up for it, uh, not up to managing the team. 
And I think, yeah, there was a, a whole load of home games against teams we should have been beaten. The only one we won was, ironically, against Portsmouth. And we left it too late. Now, obviously, you know, Harry, yeah, I'm not getting into that one. But there are parallels here. Um, you know, we're obviously going to talk about Pellegrino in a minute and, and what he's doing and not doing and all that sort of stuff. But th there are horrible parallels with that season at the moment. And I, I think expecting us... You know, we talk about winnable games now. What's a winnable game for us? We've already shown that we cannot beat the teams that sit deep and have no real ambition other than keeping it tight. We played well against Manchester United, but ultimately we lost and we didn't score. Why is anyone expecting anything to be different? You know, Pellegrino at the moment is not showing any signs of any tactical innovation or showing that he's going to do anything different in any particular game. Why do we think the games against the big teams are going to be any different? I certainly don't. Um, and I think we are, you know, when we played, you know, you mentioned Leicester at home. We all know how Claude Puel's going to set his team up. They're going to they're going to play deep and they're going to hit on the break. And they got Vardy and Mares who between yeah, they score loads of goals. They'll throw <laughs> up a goal against us. They will do. You know they will. I'm worried. I'm worried at the moment that we're just we're just sleepwalking blindly into being very very near the bottom three at Christmas time. Um, and what happens there? I think that there is a bit of a fear, and that is kind of a little bit of what happened, um, you know, without wishing to just go through a history lesson of what happened when Saints were relegated uh, from the Premier League last time. But there, there was that feeling, obviously, they had had some success in the years beforehand, and there was that feeling around the club, I can remember very clearly, especially in those early uh, periods of, well, we're, we're too good to go down. We're too big for this now. We've kind of outgrown this, this fight. And I, I think that there is... I sense there is a little bit of that around and about now that, that it's kind of, well, it won't come to that because we're too good for that. Well, I, no, nobody's no, nobody's too good for that. As we all know, there's been some much better, but much bigger clubs than Saints that have thought that and have disappeared out of the league. I don't think, as I said, that it is quite at, uh, I would say, uh, any kind of absolute crisis point already. But I, I agree that I think everybody now has to be very wary and I don't think we can say now that if it, if in another five or six games things haven't got better in terms of the results it's not it's nobody should be surprised if all of a sudden we're looking at the table going well that looks a little bit close for comfort now yeah yeah no I think you're, you're right Adam and I know I know you mentioned last week about the importance of that game and taking it into the international break for, for the reasons of not looking over your shoulder and uh, both of you have got me reminiscing there I remember sitting at the uh, the Norwich game when we won 4-3 when Omri Kamara scored and uh, I remember thinking oh we're going to stay up and then I remember being at the Everton game where Crouch had a shot in about the 93rd minute and they went up the other end and Marcus Bent popped it in for two and you just knew that we were going to go down it was uh, it was a long old season that season certainly but uh, look I mean I was going to just sort of pull out a couple of Individuals, not not necessarily just for criticism because we we want to just have a moan about them. I think it's just they are sort of pivotal players and pivotal positions within the the team. Um, starting from the back, Fraser Forster, he's taken a lot of grief this season. I mean, I, I was sort of thinking about this today. You think of Huddersfield away, you think of Crystal Palace away. He won us points in both of those games. You look at Newcastle at home, Brighton last week, the goal yesterday. Could he have done a bit better? My view on him is still a bit mixed. He has good days and bad days. I thought probably yesterday it was a bit unfair the goal on him. I think the cross could have been stopped Absolutely. and the cross could have been stopped and Yoshida obviously didn't even jump with Sam Vokes. But 
Your view on Fraser Forster, Glenn, I mean, are you a fan of his or do you, do you think some of the, I don't want to say abuse, but I think it is abuse. I mean, do you think some of the, the sort of poor communication he gets from the fans is justified? Uh, the, the bandwagon is rolling downhill very fast um, on this one. Um, I think a lot of the criticism he gets is ridiculous, um, but I I do think some of it is, warrant, is uh, very much warranted. Ever since he's been with the club, it's always been a bit of a mystery to me of how a goalkeeper of six foot seven cannot even command his six yard box um, when the ball's in the air. That that does uh, worry me about him, um, and it always has done. Recently, it seems to have been foot movement. Um, yeah, and how, I was going to pick. I was going to pick up on that. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, it, that seems to be the problem recently. Um, you can you can barrack the goalkeeper all you like. I I, I will say that. I came away from the game on Saturday equally annoyed at the performance and all the stuff that had gone on on the pitch and equally annoyed with um, fans who, you know, I mean, after the goal, which I don't think was his fault, um, he got, you know, the ironic cheer when he got the when he got the ball and he, you know, all that sort of stuff. Now, that just wires me up. Now, luckily, I sit in the family stand, so I'm kind of insulated from that sort of, thing i don't tend to hear that too much you know from people around me but i'd I'd find it very very difficult to not react to fellow fans giving abuse to players on the pitch um and you you read twitter and and i'll probably get onto him later but nathan redmond gets a lot of it as well now i thought he was one of our better players yesterday but people aren't interested in that you know they're not interested in the fact that he actually had quite a good in the context of everybody else he actually wasn't too bad yesterday but some of the stuff Forster gets is ridiculous. Um, I do think we've got... A, it probably would do him good to be rested for a couple of games. But what have we got in reserve? There's a, there's a reason that Alex McCarthy hasn't played for anyone for the best part of three years. Um, you know, he was in Crystal Palace's team for a few games and then he got dropped for Wayne Hennessy. Um, Wayne Hennessy is largely held up to not being the greatest keeper ever. So is McCarthy going to be any better? You know, every time I see the under-23s on video, he seems to be making mistakes in games that are watched by three men and a dog. So what's he going to be like playing in front of, I don't know, 45,000 people at Anfield, for argument's sake? It's, it's ironic, Adam, isn't it? I mean, certainly I'm I, I'm of the same opinion of, as Glenn on Alex McCarthy. And I know you've sort of reiterated several times that Fraser Forster is the number one. He won't be dropped by whoever is making the decisions. But it's ironic that... Paolo Gazaniga today. I mean, I wasn't a Gazaniga fan. For me, he was no better than anything we had. But ironically, he's got a man of the match for Tottenham today after we sold him for a million pound in the summer. Yeah, well, I mean, that's how it goes, isn't it? I mean, you. I was watching the goalkeepers warming up yesterday and I, I thought to myself, wow, it, it just sort of underlined the issue. You've got Fraser Porster and then you've got Alex McCarthy and Stuart Taylor. And I mean, the, the club are very keen to uh, seemingly to make Stuart Taylor out to be almost like this joke figure. <laughs> that's around and about who's almost uh, you know, making cups like, of tea making cups of tea yeah. absolutely exactly but um, you know he's being paid to be there as a professional footballer yeah it seems that you know everybody's quite happy to have a bit of a laugh and a joke that he's sort of just there to like kick the balls around and pick them up and try and lift a few spirits and have a bit of a you know be a good egg basically around the, around the camp so he's clearly no competition so then you've only got two goalkeepers uh, left there really that are, that are likely to have any um, any match time at all and uh, Alex McCarthy just is is so far away I feel from playing I think actually without wishing to uh, to reveal too many secrets I think actually 
Uh, Mouis Hassan, who was in obviously at the end of last year on loan, wasn't too far away from getting a game at the end of last season because I think Claude was keen to potentially recruit him permanently to have what somebody he felt would be a more genuine uh, extra person who could provide competition. So you'd have three goalkeepers um, rather than two plus Stuart Taylor, with all due respect to Stuart Taylor. Uh, but obviously he, he didn't in the end get the chance to play him and then his loan spell ended, Claude went and he drifted off so it was a case of just going back to the three that were already there and, and there's no real genuine competition for Forster's place I, I don't honestly know how bad it would have to get for the point that he to get to the point that he wouldn't play, uh, I think it would have to get very bad to be honest because I think that even a uh, uh, a Fraser Forster lacking in confidence, which I think he probably is at the moment, and I do feel a lot of sympathy for him. Um, I think he's clearly the best of what they've got, so he's going to keep on playing, and I completely agree with what Glenn said. I mean, the ironic cheers when he caught the ball yesterday, that wasn't after he'd conceded a goal or anything like that. That was that was like the first time he touched the ball in the first half, midway through the half. Yeah. And I thought to myself then, goodness me, you're sort of nil-nil, the guy's done absolutely nothing wrong. He's basically not touched the ball and he's getting barracks already in front of the home fans. And it's the only one of the um, consolations I take almost from Saints' run that's coming up uh, is that in a perverse kind of way, the fact they've played seven games at home and, and so now obviously they've got a loaded away fixture uh, list uh, not in the, you know, coming up actually might help them because they clearly don't enjoy playing at home. They clearly um, are not happy with the some of the support they're getting. I think they clearly they hear it as well as we do. Obviously, they were booed off yesterday. Uh, Forster was being given ironic cheers and quite a lot of abuse. Uh, players that are not liked, particularly by fans. There's you know there's cheers when players are being taken off now. There's general murmurings of discontent when a player you know even tries something. The players, I don't, I'm getting the impression that potentially the players just don't like playing in front of the Saints fans at the moment. So maybe playing away from home might actually be a blessing for them. He's definitely going to be busy in the seven games, I would imagine, which which could work, you know, in his favour. I mean, he's obviously going to have to make saves, and let's say if he does. But Glenn, Glenn touched on the point there, Adam, and I, it's, it's something that sort of stuck with me when you look at the Brighton goal last week and the way he moved across his line. And even yesterday, as as I say, I totally agree with Glenn. For me, it wasn't his fault at all the goal yesterday. But even even when you look at him dive for the ball, I mean, the ball's almost hit the net before he dies for it. I mean, he's six foot seven. I appreciate he's not Billy Elliot. You know, he can't tiptoe around, but. His, his footwork, I mean, surely as a goalkeeping coach, you're working with him all week. You've got to be looking at that. I mean, as fans, it's something we've noticed for months now. I think the difficulty is, for, for somebody who plays it, it's a team sport, but obviously goalkeeper is very much an individual position. I think it's very, very hard. If, if, you're, if your mind goes somewhat, if your confidence has gone somewhat, which I suspect is the case with Fraser, I think his confidence has probably completely dried up and he's probably having a lot of self-doubt. He's obviously got a lot of time to think about that during a game as well. And then, you know, potentially not helped by the fact that the fact he's not in great form is being pointed out to him by his own supporters. I think it's very hard because actually he, it's not like if you, if, if Ryan Bertrand was going through a sustained bad trot, He'd just be left out and he'd have a couple of games to kind of gather his thoughts, gather his head, regroup, and then he could be put back in the team again and probably come again. With Forster, because there's no real genuine competition, he is trying to correct these problems out there during games. I mean, that's what that's that's the reality for him. He can't be left out because it's just because there's no real uh, 
there's no real competition. And certainly there seems to be no appetite for changing him or feeling there's competition from the management. So therefore, he has to try and get over a crisis of confidence, not by going away and regrouping, but by being absolutely 100% smack bang in the spotlight every single week. And, and that's a really... That is a really tough place to be, and no matter how much these guys get paid, that is still really hard, and I think that's that's potentially a problem that Forster's facing at the moment. Well, I, I think we could probably talk about him for hours, but uh, let, let, let's move on. So the next position I wanted to have a chat about was centre-back. Um, this this rotation thing that you mentioned last week, Adam, seems to have become a, a thing now. Yoshida replacing Hoyt yesterday, who was probably unlucky to lose his position after Brighton when he replaced Yoshida, who was probably unlucky to lose his, his place after uh, the game against West Brom. And, well, you get the picture, obviously, you see how it's going. And in terms of centre-back, I mean, how are defenders, Adam, Van Dijk and Yoshida, Van Dijk, Hoyt, whoever, how can they build a successful partnership and get to understand each other's game and who, who's communicating, who's covering, etc., etc., if they're constantly being swapped in and out every week? Because, I mean, you know, we spoke about this last week. It does just seem to be um, a fact of trying to keep three central defenders happy by playing them um, every other week. So, you know, surely that, in a, in a, in a position of centre-back, which is so important to the team, is, is, is not a good thing for consistency. Yeah, well, I mean, we spoke about it last week, and I, I maintain it. I mean, I was, I turned up at the ground, and I heard on the grapevine what, what was going to happen with the team, uh, which sure enough did happen. And yeah, I have to say that I was, uh, I was baffled when I was told the same as I was baffled when I was told that Yoshida was being dropped previously. I mean, I don't, I just don't understand it. I think the spine of the team, you want that is the most important area to have consistencies and to build partnerships and relationships and. I mean, it all comes back to the fact, I, I think, that obviously he's trying to keep uh, a lot of players happy and a lot of first-team uh, potential players happy. And when I uh, asked him last Thursday, I just asked him straight out, when I was asking about the identity situation, do you do you know your best team? Yeah, do you know, you know, if you had everybody fit and available, who you'd pick? And really, the, the manager kind of talked around it a little bit and kind of gave a bit of, well, you know, well, people, you know, form and... Oh, uh, you know, the games and uh, opposition and things like that. And you think, yeah, I appreciate that. That that's a, that is a very hypothetical question. Obviously, it is. But nonetheless, you must have an idea as to you know, in an ideal world for for an average game, who you would put out. But but maybe this this sort of chopping and changing of one position that sort of here and there suggests that he's he's potentially still trying to come to terms with it. It's it's got to be either that. Or an absolute obsession with the opposition, and trying to pick the what you know the one player who he thinks is going to best deal with a particular opponent, or it's got to be quite simply um, fear of upsetting too many people, and therefore he needs to try and make sure that they're all getting games. Yeah, but if that's the if that's the case, we play against Brighton, who have Glenn Murray up front, a big striker who can't run because he's got no knees. All he can do is head the ball. That's it. So the best two to play against him would be Van Dijk and Hoyt, which is what he did pick. Against Burnley, you know it's going to be an air raid. You know they've got three massive centre-forwards. The best two players to pick will be Van Dijk and Hoyt. So he's not picking, you know, depending on who the opposition is. He's just he's just rotating the players to try and keep them happy, in my view. And he's not he's paid to make difficult decisions. That's what he's there for. He's there to pick his best team and go with it. The other problem that you've got with the centre-halves is that when Hoyt and Van Dijk plays, Hoyt plays on the left, Van Dijk plays on the right. When it's Yoshida and Van Dijk, it's the other way around. Yoshida plays right, Van Dijk plays left. 
Now, against Brighton, I do wonder if on the on the goal, which comes from across from the um, our left flank, whether Van Dijk had got himself in the wrong position because he was like naturally heading towards the left-hand side. I remember seeing an interview with John Terry once where he said, you know, he always favoured playing the left-hand side. And it was, it was difficult when he played on the right because he tended to gravitate that way. So going back to the earlier point, you can't build partnerships if, you're, if you and breathe, you know, familiarity. Because when Van Dijk plays on the left, he's obviously in touch with Bertrand. When he plays on the right, he's got to be in touch with Cedric. So it, it changes everything. And I don't get what the manager is doing trying to trying to swap people around because Hoyt has now been dropped twice after games where he did absolutely nothing wrong. Yoshida got dropped after a game where he did absolutely nothing wrong. Virgil has had his well-publicised issues and it's just come swanning back in and he's playing every game. Um, and I don't get it. The, you know, if, if the manager's going to pick on attitude, then he should probably pick Hoyt and Yoshida. If he's going to pick on ability, he should probably pick Van Dijk and Hoyt. But he's, you know, he's just falling between two stools all over the place. And here's a moment of sympathy as well for Jack Stevens, who we're not even discussing, who was absolutely heroic in the second half of last season. And uh, a young English player, which is supposed to be what Saints want, who is now, as far as I can make out, completely frozen out, totally been jettisoned uh, for a player who's put in a transfer request and done everything he can to try and leave and a very expensive signing of a foreign player from abroad, which, as far as I'm aware, goes against everything that we're constantly told Saints stand for, which is a very confusing uh, situation all in all. And I feel a bit sorry for Jack Stevens. I don't really uh, know what more he could have done. and He's he's completely out in the cold now. I agree to a point, um, but the, the other three are all better players than Jack Stevens. In my uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not saying, I'm not saying they're not, um, but I'm just... Uh, I'm just making the point that this is yeah. uh, this is just a, a slight, I feel, a slight inconsistency because the thing is, it's like this this whole like myth of the Southampton way, which I've, I've always thought was a complete load of tosh. But you can't preach one thing continually and, and you know have all this uh, great philosophical talk about the way you do things if then you act the same as everybody else when push comes to shove, which is just what they've done with Jack Stevens. And I'm not disagreeing. I actually do agree. I think Van Dyke. Uh, is, is and and Hoyt uh, and Yoshida are deserve to be ahead of the pecking order of him, and just in terms of sheer ability. Forget let's talk not talk about attitude or anything like that because that should come into it, but ability alone. But nonetheless, this is meant to be a club that's that's keen on the promotion of young players. So we're we're told anyway. Yeah, and we we, we were going to have a chat about the academy, which for for people that are expecting to hear that, I think we decided there was so much to talk about in the, in the Burnley game that uh, Glenn Adam and myself are going to postpone that for a, a few weeks. But look, I, I think that was the reason I hadn't necessarily discussed Jack Stevens. But I think you're right, Adam. I mean, last season he was probably one of the standout performers. Admittedly, he came into the side because Van Dijk got injured and we we ballsed up Salimfonte and everything happened within that week. But you know, he's probably fifth choice now. I, I imagine even Jan Bednarik is probably ahead of him in terms of that. And then you've got Yoshida. So I mean, I mean, there's one way that we can potentially look at it, and I don't want to, to have a massive conversation about formation, but there's been a lot of chat about trying to look at the formation and possibly playing three at the back and things like that. So Our squad is screaming out for that. Yeah, yeah, because then you can play all three of them, they can get to know each other, and that's something that can potentially work, especially when you think of the full-backs that can bomb forward, right? Oh, well, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens uh, in the not-too-distant future. I think... There was definitely uh, a week not long ago, and I sort of hinted at it when I spoke, when I, I think it was on the verge of happening, and it, it just was a last-minute decision not to. 
and I think so. So I'm pretty sure that it's something that's in the melting pot um, and, and definitely a potential. Especially seeing Saints have, as we we're just discussing, such strength in the centre back department. However, I don't think Saints have wanted to do that given the run of fixtures they've had. Because actually, to play a third centre half uh, when you're playing these, uh, you know, what, what look like frankly fairly beatable teams at home would be seen as a negative tactic. To sacrifice potentially one attacking player to have another centre-half in against teams that are going to put 10 men behind the ball, and or potentially even 11 in some of the cases of what we've seen, would uh, probably come across as quite a lot more negative. I wouldn't be surprised, given the run of fixtures, i.e. bigger teams, a lot of games away from home coming up, if we did see this switch now, because actually playing away from home um, and against those bigger teams is something that you can you can sort of imagine might work. But I don't think the manager probably felt in any position to think, well, actually, I'll tell you what will really uh, endear me to the fans and to everybody else. And when we're struggling to score goals, let's get an extra centre-half in the team and let's drop an attacking player. That'll do the job. As whereas yesterday, obviously, he went all out, really. Um, and and did he did build in those four attacking roles, four attacking players. He didn't go uh, with a negative option, really. Depends how you look at it, though. I mean, you could say, okay, I'm playing with three defenders instead of four. If you push the wing back, you know, if you push the fullbacks right on, you're playing with three defenders instead of four. So in effect, you're playing with an extra attacking player. The formation is unimportant. It's what the what the players do within that formation. I mean, if Cedric and Bertrand play right up the pitch, then you, you, you're playing with extra players up front. If they, but play, you've still got three at the back, and probably marking one striker though. That's the if, thing, is it? If you're playing, unless you've got Yoshida or, or Van Dyke pushing into a central midfield area to release another central midfielder uh, further forward, which is possible, then fair enough. But otherwise, you, you would probably end up with an extra centre-half probably back on the halfway line, I think. Yeah, but and, but and Bertrand and Cedric are meant to provide the much of the whip anyway. That's how that's how Saints play, and that's why they play two holding midfielders. So that should be happening. I mean, you, yeah, you can argue that it's not, but nonetheless, that's, that's what should be happening. And I, I, I suspect that the, the time might be might be right for that change to come um, possibly the other side the international break so, so I think we're all agreed then we're going to play for the next seven games we're going to play Forster, McCarthy and Stuart Taylor and then five centre-backs right? <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me It's worth a go it's right let's go and um, let's have a chat about centre midfield as well Steve Davison Adam I looked at the team sheet yesterday I saw his smiling face without the MBE looking straight at me plonked in there next to Oriol Romeo we, we've spoken about it before based on last season that he's obviously much better in a, an attacking position we, we've got someone on the bench in Pierre-Emil Hoiberg who's played for Bayern Munich chomping at the bit to get in the team in previous worth yet we decide in the absence of Lamina again to, to stick Davis back there in centre midfield we all know that Steve Davis is one of our best players and I don't think there's any doubt that he should be in the side. But when you look at that sort of defensive midfield position, he's not really someone that, that, that gets the best out of him playing there, right? Well, I would rather he played further forward. I mean, I've, I've said that consistently. I think he's actually one of the more creative players. The fact he's, what, he's almost top goal scorer this season. I know they haven't scored many, but nonetheless, um, he has at least contributed some goals from an attacking uh, midfield position, which which we haven't seen from other players that have played there and have played more games there as well. I, I would rather he was further further up the pitch, but I mean the manager has to go. I, I I do have a certain amount of sympathy with Pellegrino because ultimately it's it's always fine for us, uh, you know, armchair pundits or whatever, to sit there and uh, and make our own decisions. But in 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 important positions, he has to go with the people that he feels he can trust, and he obviously feels that. 
uh, Romeo and Lamina and Davis are the players that he can trust in that position. And he's obviously decided at this point in time he doesn't feel like he can trust uh, anybody else to play in that role. And if that's what he thinks, then I, I would rather uh, he just sticks with, by his principles than, uh, than he just changes it for the sake of sort of baying to, to the mob, as it were, and what other people want. I mean, I would like to see more of Hoiberg. But let's be honest, I know it was first season, he's very young, and I accept all of that. He didn't exactly set the world alight last year. You know, a good start, but then kind of just faded off a little bit. Uh, it would be good to see a bit more of him, but he obviously doesn't feel like that. But, you know, it's going to be Lamina when he's back anyway, I think. So um, I don't think it's going to be a, it's not going to be a permanent move, and hopefully that will see Stephen Davis further up the pitch. I'm sure Lamina being back will bring a lot more uh, back to Saints as well, because they've really missed him. Have we got a rough idea on Lamina, Adam? I don't know if you've heard anything from uh, in terms of this week in and around Pellegrino of how long he will be out for. Yeah, I don't think it's too much longer. I, I, they're, they're hopeful that he'll be back for Liverpool after the international break. I mean, the international break's come at a really good time for Saints, really, uh, with regards to Lamina, um, because they only had two weekend fixtures and then the international breaks. It's kind of almost given him a month uh, where he'd only missed two games. So... I think if he doesn't, uh, from, from what I've heard anyway, what Pellegrino said, I think if he doesn't quite make Liverpool, then they're pretty confident that he'll be back for uh, Everton. So it's not it's not too long away in terms of fixtures. It'll either be the next one or the one after. So I don't think they'll be without him for too much longer. Glenn, what's your view on um, Steve Davis and centre midfield? I'm not saying you have to agree with me, of course, but what, what's your view on that position? I'm not surprised that he did it. Uh, you know, uh, that's entirely the, the sort of thing that Pellegrino has done so far. Um, the trouble I have with it is at the end of the game, he gives this interview where he moans about the, you know, the, the fact that we've got so many small, slight players um, and we couldn't compete with Burnley's physicality. Now, you know, we went 4-4-2 at the end of the game and because we basically lost a midfielder by doing this and sticking an extra man up front, the four in midfield have to, you know, get about the park more and put more tackles in and... He's gone 4-4-2, with the four midfielders being Romeo and the other three being Davis, Buffal and Redmond, who are all five foot seven and about eight stone. So if he's worried about the physicality of the team, he's got Hoiberg on the bench, he's got Hoyt on the bench, and he's got Austin on the bench. Now, I'm not saying those three players are all brilliant by any stretch of the imagination, but they're all, you know, so if, he's, if he's worried about the physicality of the side in comparison to Burnley, why are these three players not playing? Or why are they not involved? Why does he go 4-4-2 with three lightweight midfielders who just got smashed to bits? And that's why we spent the whole of the last 20 minutes going backwards. Um, in answer to the original question, Steve Davis as a holding midfielder, no, it doesn't work. doesn't work because I always remember him playing there last year. We, he, we played against Spurs at home and he played against Wanyama and Dembele. And he barely touched the ball. Every time he, every time he got the ball, he just got smashed off the ball. And it... You know, he, he's, he's good at getting attacks moving um, and, you know, picking up the ball from deep and, and trying, to, trying to get us moving. But it, it's just not his position. I agree with Adam. It's just, it's just not his position at all. You lose what he's good at mm. and you don't gain a great deal by, by putting him there. I think Jack Stevens would make a good holding midfielder, but that's another conversation. Also. <laughs> we'll find a way to get him into the side somehow. But uh, no, look, I, I think obviously it's such a, a pivotal position for Saints in that, that defensive midfield so hopefully Lamina can be back for the Liverpool game because we're, we're certainly going to need him um, just moving a row forward again so obviously you mentioned Redmond earlier 
again, when I looked at the team sheet, Adam, I, I think I tweeted about Tadic, Bufal and Redmond and, and Glenn's hit the nail on the head there about the whole physicality of, of Burnley because you, you do know what you're going to expect from them and Pellegrino may be new to the Premier League but Eric Black isn't, Dave Watson isn't. They should be able to say to him, look, this is the sort of side that Burnley are and this is the sort of side that Sean Dyche sets up. When you bear in mind Adam Tadic and Redmond's sort of lack of confidence at the moment, I think I saw Adam Blackmore tweeted last night that Redmond's had 27 shots this season, more than any other Premier League player without scoring, um, and the general sort of work rate of the three of them. Was it a mistake playing all three of them in the same side, or, or do you think it was a risk he, he had to had to sort of take? He had to take the risk of playing four very attacking players uh, in those positions. I think that that was obvious. It, it was obvious Saints wouldn't, you know, this is my point about the extra centre-half, really. It was Saints were not going to come under any serious amount of pressure from Burnley because Burnley were not going to turn up and ever play like that. And sure enough, that's how it transpired. So you needed to have as many attacking options on the pitch as you can. Now, the argument, I think, is is whether did he pick the right attacking options or not? And I, I think everybody's... Well, the, the proof of the pudding is that they, they didn't score. But um, actually, I think everybody's entitled to their own opinion. The only thing I'd, I must admit I'd like to have seen... I, I, I didn't think it was an unreasonable selection. I didn't think it, it was totally unreasonable. I would have liked to have seen probably an earlier change. I thought that we were talking in the press box, actually, and I, I think we were sort of in agreement around the hour mark. We were saying he needs to get Shane Long on here, actually. I know Shane Long's you know, obviously a long run without uh, without scoring, but actually just kind of what he offers might be the kind of thing that Saints needed because it had got to that point where everything could slow down too much again. It was all from from that either side of half time. They'd shown a bit of dynamism. They'd shown a willingness to actually run at a few players and try and get you know get around the outside. And then it kind of slowed up again. I thought, well, Long might be a guy that can change this. You could have played two up front. Um, obviously, Dyche made the change and and uh, changed his his sort of attacking to it as it were the one up front and the one off of the one up front. Pellegrino took off Gabbiadini and brought on Austin, and I, I just thought, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about this. This doesn't. This doesn't really seem quite right. So for me, I, I'm not sure. I would say I, I, it's not necessarily the four I would have picked myself, but I'm not going to turn around and say he got it wrong because I think he did the right thing in at least trying to pick four attacking players for that for that game. But that said. The, the goals didn't come again and so what, what can you say ultimately that's that's all that matters really are they scoring goals or are they not scoring goals Glenn you mentioned Redmond earlier and obviously the fans frustration he suffers I mean he's obviously a young lad trying to make his way in the in the Premier League and uh, on the other wing you've got Dusan Tadic who's uh, an experienced professional international player he's someone that's obviously failed to deliver much much this season yet seems to get picked every week it's not, this, it's not just this season it's last season as well for 18 months that guy has been poor. He's half decent when he plays on the left-hand side. He's hopeless when he plays on the right. He just slows everything down. He doesn't seem to know when to stick or twist, when to take a player on, when to knock it back, when to cross it in, left-footed, right-footed, whatever. He's, in my view, a nightmare. Um, and we've got we've got a right-footed winger on the left wing. I hate it. It's it's a negative tactic because it's it's all to do with closing the pitch down when you haven't got the ball, which goes back to that very interesting interview that Romeo gave during the week about Pellegrino wanting him to think about defence while, you know, while, while we were attacking or whatever it was. I don't get why the wingers play on the wrong side. I, I applaud the move to put Buffal in the number 10 role because, yeah, I think that's I think that's where he probably needs to play. But, yeah, I, I don't get it. I mean, 
Tadic has, has delivered absolutely nothing, I don't think, for about 18 months. Um, but he still gets picked. I don't know if Josh Sims was fit. I don't know if he'd be in the team. I suspect not because everything seems to be done on based on sort of fear. Um, I, I can't imagine Pellegrino being brave enough to play a young player. I agree with what Adam said. We needed to pick four four attacking players. Um, in, in my opinion, we, we picked the wrong ones. But, and the substitutions were ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. We took Gabbiadini off. We put Austin on. And then we put Shane Long on. And we, we've ended up with two forwards. Shane Long hasn't scored since before the echo was on the internet. <laughs> and Charlie Austin reminds me of Ricky Lambert in the way that he obviously he, he doesn't look fit. He looks like he needs a run of games in order to get fit. Um, he doesn't look like he's on, on the pace at all when he comes on. So we've got a striker who can't run and a striker who can only run as our focal point of our attack. Um, is it any wonder? When, and the best striker we've got by a country mile is off the pitch. He spent 60 minutes running around not getting the ball. You see him, if you, if you just watch him and don't watch anybody else for a minute, you'll see the amount of runs he makes and the amount of times he doesn't get the ball. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. And then we, we change to two strikers who just aren't up to it. And that's a, that's a big flaw in our squad. We've only got one striker who's fit for purpose and he's not fit for the way that we play absolutely. at the moment. Yeah. And the substitution in the last minute was insane as well. I know it was the last minute and we probably already lost. I understand him wanting to get War Prowse on to take a free kick or, or whatever. But you've taken Bufal off. Why not take Cedric off? He was useless. You know, he didn't add a thing attacking. So we're, we're looking for a goal. We're looking for a goal for 90 minutes, and we've ended up taking off Gabbiadini and Buffal, our two probably most likely players to come up with a goal. Tadic, Adam, he's, he's obviously created a lot of assists for Graziano Powell. When you, when you look at it, ironically, as Glenn's mentioned there, it's sort of been 18 months pretty much that he's gone off the board to a certain extent, which ties in with sort of Powell leaving the club. Um, when, when you look at the other end of the pitch, Sam Vokes obviously came on, is a Saints fan, he's good in the air, he's everything that you want in the box for a player that crosses the ball. Tadic has stopped crossing the ball, A, either to a lack of confidence, or B, because he knows there is no one in there to cross the ball too. So we've obviously missed that sort of player, but do you think that's probably tied hand in hand with Tadic's uh, up and down form? Yeah, well, it's weird, it's weird we should be having this conversation today because, funnily enough, we were talking about it in the press box yesterday before the game. We were sort of saying, blimey, it, it seems so long ago that, that Tadic, the first sort of 10, 15 games he had at Saints when he set that assist record and, and you're like, wow, who is this guy? He's yeah. absolutely fantastic. And and as you said, it was we discussed last week, um, so I won't go into it again, but the fact that obviously Saints have kept the core of, a team and a style of playing together that required a target man striker, but now decided that they want small nippy strikers rather than target man strikers. And that that really hasn't, yeah, you know, they haven't adapted to a completely different style of play that they seem to be trying to get the sort of similar players in the same formation to play. And I think that is part of the problem, but I do actually agree with Glenn um, in the, I, I believe one of the reasons Potentially, I, I don't. I don't know this. I haven't asked Pellegrino. No, I'm just uh, theorising here. But one of the reasons that maybe Tadic does play is actually less a positive move and more more a defensive move. I do agree with that because one thing I think that that Tadic um, occasionally he gets criticised for being a bit theatrical. I know that, but actually, when you actually watch Tadic carefully, one thing that has changed actually in his game 
is blimey he graphs he, he puts in the miles i tell you that when he's he's not that many players that are covering much more grass than he is for saints in the game he's oh, a very yeah. very um diligent player now unfortunately it seems that that has uh, been at uh, the detriment of his creativity sadly his creativity has gone down as his hard work and diligence has gone up and i think i think glenn's hit the nail on the head and that he sort of almost kind of picked because he does offer that diligence and there is the chance that he will do something really creative a big target man makes it easier to play it, it, you know you can try and slide a ball in but at the end of the day if you can't what happened two years ago is that they could always if they wanted to they had the option of sending the ball in higher to Pella he would bring it down and then we could get goals off of him or get shots on target off of him with him laying off or him doing something himself we haven't got that option now we've got sliding it into a channel for Gabbiadini or, or Long or whatever and that's it we've, we've become very one dimensional so it's all very well saying we've got these nippy strikers who, who get about and make runs and all that sort of stuff but we haven't got the option now of, you know, at risk of sounding like Mike Bassett, put it in the mixer. We haven't got that now. We we, we don't have it, and we we don't get enough quality into the to the to the striker. As I say, Gabby Adini looks totally lost. Um, but picking up on what, what Adam said there, what do we want our attacking players to do? You know, we don't score any goals. Do we, do we want our attacking players to help with scoring goals, or do we want them to be extra fullbacks? I, I just and that, to me, is down down to the manager and how positive or negative he wants to be. And, and this guy, unfortunately, for those who want to actually see some goals and some entertaining football, is totally about you know the, the defensive side of the game. Now, I like defenders. I was a defender myself when I played, so I'm all about defending. But you've got to have attacking players being allowed to attack. We didn't try and make Matt Letizia a defender, did we? Um, Ian Bradford tried. And soon as tried, it didn't work because he—it's it, just not what he's about. And you lose so much by asking him to do that. You know, I must admit, I hadn't really thought about Tadic being asked to play in a more defensive way. I've just got very, very frustrated with the fact that so many attacks seem to slow down on him and on on Redmond, who never seems to go on the outside. It's always cutting inside, running into players, all this sort of stuff. You know, what do you want your attacking players to do? I want Tadic to be putting balls through for Gabbiadini to stick in the net. I don't want him covering Cedric primarily. And that is down to the manager. How you know what what does he want us to do? In, in terms of Pellegrino, then Adam, criticism is obviously rife at the moment. I mean, he seems to have almost lost the fan base quicker than Claude Puel did, which is is some effort on his part. Certainly, I think. Um, I mean, we we ran a poll. Over overnight, and uh, 70% of those that voted said that they they'd had enough of him. 30% felt that he deserved more time. Is, is criticism that he's getting unfair, or do you think it is collective effort? Does he deserve criticism as the manager of a team who haven't picked up the results that everybody wants? Of course, but he he'll accept that. He's a big boy. He knows what comes with the job. He knows that that's his job. It's about results, and if they're not getting results, he's going to get criticised. And when then? Uh, obviously the football isn't great to watch and you don't get results. It's like a, it's like an absolute double whammy for him. So he's going to, he's going to get that. I think, I think there's a danger of going too far over the top too early. I think we've already discussed in some detail, the fact that there are uh, worries ahead, but we're 11 games into the season for goodness sake, 11 league games. And yes, it hasn't gone as, as he would have wanted thus far or anybody else. But, it does strike me as a bit extreme to be 
uh, get, you know, giving him so much stick. And I realise that this is a bit of a carry on from from the Claude stuff. Um, had this happened after Ronald had left, uh, well, Claude wasn't getting this level of stick. Yeah, the fans didn't warm to him early on. I think it's fair to say they never really warmed to him, obviously. But to be fair, the team were probably a lot of people forget. Obviously, it was a bit better in some apart from the first few games the Claude kind of settled in there was some decent performances in there in that first part of the season particularly before you know everything uh, really fell away after the uh, EFL Cup final but I think with Pellegrino it's difficult because I understand that people are frustrated and people are also worried because they, they, they see the fixture list the same as we do and there's that kind of school of thought that says well you need to act now because otherwise if you leave it it's too late. Well, ultimately, I'll make the point that I made last week with Puel. Pellegrino is managing largely the same squad as Puel had. He's got them playing largely the same style. So I'll, I'll say one more time. Is the problem purely the manager or is the problem that Southampton don't have, have the right balance in their squad and the right balance of players? And two successive managers, Puel, who had been a massively uh, experienced coach, uh, abroad for many many years managed a Champions League semi-final Pellegrino yes a lot less experience granted but has managed a few clubs has played at the highest level as well are both of those guys so clueless that they think that this is the only way that they can play or do they actually believe that this is the best way to try and get results with the squad they've got because if two guys genuinely believe that's the best way to get the results Maybe, maybe people who are thinking, well, we should be playing this great uh, attacking style of football. We should be doing this, that and the other are just incorrect in that um, actually the, the managers, successive managers don't feel that they've got the players to play that like that. And the best way that they believe that they can get results is playing in this manner. And uh, I mean, I think 70 percent wanting him to go after 11 games seems to me... Uh, pretty Barbie and I, I've always thought the one thing about Saints and, and Saints fans is that I, I thought that they were always a little bit different to a lot of other clubs fans and that they do tend to try and give time and they do they are trying to try and be patient with managers and players um, and I can understand why there's frustration at the moment but I think if people really want to think about what they're frustrated about I'm not convinced it's actually this individual guy that's the problem the same as I don't think it's actually Claude as a guy that's the problem it's various other things that play into this whole whole situation of where the club find themselves at the moment. And I've obviously spoken on this podcast at some length about the fact that I think Saints are at a bit of a crossroads as a club. I think they are suffering collectively, and I don't just mean within the club, I mean fans and everything, a little bit of an identity crisis, a little bit of what are we about, who are we, where, where is our place in the world at the moment. And I think that the truth is, this is all the angst that plays into things like that. And I don't think that... Um, whether you like Pellegrino or not, whether you think he's a good character or a good manager or not, um, whether you consider that 11 games is really enough to even work that out yet, uh, I would say probably not, then I'm not sure that actually just going straight for the jugular or get the manager out of the door as quickly as possible is going to solve the problem. Let's not forget, people very, were very keen to get rid of Claude Puel last year, and that's not solved the problem, has it? Because we're having the same conversations now as we were then. Exactly, and I think, Glenn, that ties in with your view. I think that you, you, you feel certainly the players have uh, do their own criticism as well, right? Definitely so, and I, you know, I think it comes down from the, from the board as well, whoever's making the decisions on the, on the football side of things. Um, 
I can't imagine there's many managers who wouldn't want a good target man striker in their squad. And we haven't got one. I do think that, I mean, Claude was sold short a bit last year with the centre-half issue. Um, and, you know, so that that's not really his fault. Well, and also he didn't get, let's not forget Gabbiadini, he wasn't given him until January either. Yeah, exactly. We always seem to, every transfer window, we seem to leave one issue not sorted out. Um, in the January one, it was the centre-half issue. This summer, it's obviously been the striker issue. We, we've, we've got rid of Rodriguez. I thought Gallagher would be in the squad, but we've loaned him out. And we're, we're left with three strikers who are, you know, well, we've already done this. They're, they're not they're not really suitable for the way that we're trying to play. So we do always seem to leave an issue out. Um, I'm, you know, we're led to believe now that incoming players and the makeup of the squad is decided by, you know, it's not decided by the manager, it's decided by committee. Well, you know, these people need to look at themselves. Um, as for Pellegrino, I would hate us to be the sort of club that fires managers every five minutes. I don't want us to be like that. The early signs are not good with this guy. Um, I, Part of the problem is expectation. We've had, you know, five or six good years. Last year was a was a blip, and this year is carrying on. So I think people want more these days. People are generally more impatient these days. Um, Adam's point about Saints fans being different, I would say that we were. But now I think the Premier League and the way it is has, has, has brought a different style of fan in who want everything now. Um, and... Patience is in short supply this year, and that, as you said, it's partly because of what we had last year with Claude. We were led to believe that he was sort of tactically a, a very good manager. What sold me in the summer when I thought Pellegrino might be a good idea is that everyone said, you know, he's tactically very good, he's done very well with this small team. But if you look at that, if you look at Alaves, they're, they're, the, they're a very small side and they, they got into the, the Spanish Premier League, whatever it's called and finished ninth by basically playing very, very dull, risk-averse football. Now, Saints were already a higher mid-table side. Seventh, eighth, ninth, we've finished there the last few years. So we needed more than Pellegrino had provided in his career up to, up to date. Now, we, you know, we bring in players, like we brought in Sadio Mane when no one had heard of him, and he became a better player, and he's moved on. I can't help but feel that the board would have wanted Pellegrino to have moved on from what he'd done with Alavesh and become better as a Southampton manager. Southampton didn't need what he provided at Alavesh. They needed something more than that. And I think they, they'd they hope he'd grow into that and provide that. But early signs are not good, I don't think. And just the natural impatience in people these days and, you know, having to put up with Claude Ball and the... Um, second half of last season I just think that's why people have got the knives out a lot earlier than they would normally have yeah the, the pressure is certainly going to keep growing isn't it yeah Adam um, Charlie Hawkins was keen for me to ask you from from your understanding whether you know that Pellegrino has got specific targets that he needs to hit this season whether you know the board are expecting him to get seventh whether they want him to definitely finish top 10 whether they'll just uh, accept a season of sort of you know him getting to understand the Premier League and that sort of thing I, I, I'm sure you can't answer it 100% accurately based on um, information. But in your view, do you think he's got set targets that he knows he needs to hit? I'm not saying that that will put his job at, at risk either way, but do you think he will feel the pressure of knowing that they expect something of him? I think the thing is, though, it's, it's like stating the bleeding obvious, isn't it, with almost what, what targets are and what expectations are. Our expectations are high. And, of course, any manager coming into a job is going to have some target, be it a very formal target of keep us in the league or, be it, or, or win the title, 
or a very informal target of kind of, well, look, we're looking, we'd like to see progress. This is where we're building towards in the long term. And I think that's more the kind of targets that Pellegrino's uh, going to have been set. I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I know intimately exactly the details of his conversations with Les Reed because I'm not party to those, so I don't know them. But I- I'm pretty sure that, that Southampton, the way they think of themselves is not, well, we need to get 40 points and stay in the league and then everything else is a bonus. They're building continual progression is what they want. So that's, um, at the moment, I think they're in that phase where they feel that uh, establishing themselves a bit further in that sort of challenging around 7 eighth is kind of where they want to be. That's where they want to be. They consider that progress. I'm sure that's what they want him to do. Uh, I think what's interesting is I think some of the fringe targets, has he been set or hasn't he? Uh, for example, obviously one of the things we knew about Claude, because Claude told us um, quite openly, was and continually, in fact, was that he was there to bring through the young players. And that was something very important, not only to him, but he was continually being emphasised as something very important to the club. And now I know we're not talking in depth about the academy, but again, that's something that we haven't seen at all this season, really. I mean, we're, we're barely seeing an academy player... Uh, get on the pitch, really. I mean, we get Ward Prowse occasionally, and that's pretty much it. So that's kind of fallen by the wayside as well a little bit, another uh, pillar of the Southampton way. And so, yeah, I don't quite know. It does baffle me a little bit as to exactly what those kind of targets are. And also, the the Southampton way has supposedly also been sold in the past as a certain style of football. Well, this is successive managers that up until this point haven't played in that manner. So are they just getting the job telling people they're going to play a certain way and then coming in and doing something different? Or is this just kind of, well, it's accepted that they can come in and, and do what they want and that's not a set part of the uh, of, of the remit for their job. So I don't really, I don't really know is, is <laughs> to answer your question, I don't know. But um, I think the Pellegrino, what I really want from him I, I, personally is I would like, especially in this two weeks for him, <laughs> as if I'm telling him what he should do here, but um to, to really just come up with a really, what I feel was a decisive plan for yeah. what he wants to do and just go for it and just have the courage of his convictions to just go for it. And if he's like, and then if it doesn't work out, well, we all know what's going to happen anyway. But at the moment, I just feel there's too much of this sort of just trying to not take too many risks and he might want to do that. But oh, second thoughts, maybe I shouldn't. And oh, I just, oh, actually, I'll just tinker there or I could go through the back. Oh, no, actually, I'll just hold on for another week. Yeah, it feels to me like there's a lot of that going on. That just is the sense I get. And it might, I might be miles wide of the mark here, but that's just the sense I get. And I just would really like him to at least, I'd like to at least feel that he was doing it completely on his own terms, just going for what he thinks is right. And if that proves to be wrong, well, he's going he's gonna to get sacked anyway. But it's better than continuing as they are now, where he's probably going to end up in big trouble anyway, the way things are going at the moment. But perhaps doing things in a more indecisive, maybe is the wrong word, but a more cautious uh, approach, which I think just just isn't really paying dividends at the moment. I'm sure if he's listening, the, the three goalkeepers thing was a, a joke from where it's here, so don't do that. But uh, Glenn, I was, I was I just I was... do the, so that the Southampton Way thing uh, yeah. just just for a second. Um, I I found that very interesting. Um, I found it very interesting with with a couple of things. A couple of years ago, Harrison Reed was being talked up as our, our next great young player. And, uh, you know, he was going to come through and he was going to do this and that. And we we then signed, we, 
when Morgan Schneiderlin left, we then paid 10 million quid or whatever it was to sign Jordi Classy to basically uh, block off any chance that Harrison Reed had of uh, making progress to the first team because it was another five foot two combative little midfielder who was always going to be in front of Reed in the pecking order. Now, as it turns out, we've kept Classy for two years and then binned him, rightly so, because he was not up to it. So that was the first time I thought, well, what is this Southampton way all about? And we've got youngsters now who are in and around the squad, but, you know, not not in the team. Um, and and the, other, the other time was when, when Claude came in, uh, when Ronald Koeman was there, there was, there was noise made about... We want all the teams in the club to play this Barcelona formation, 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1, whatever it was. And then Claude came in and immediately ripped it up and we were playing a diamond diamond formation that absolutely no one was suited to, to start with. And so he was allowed to sort of come in and change this whole philosophy. So suddenly we weren't playing the Barcelona way, we were playing the Claude Pure way. He was allowed to do that. And that always confused me. So have we got a philosophy or haven't we? Or is it just marketing BS? Or what is it? Um, uh, are we trying to bring up players through or are we not? Are we are we going to bring players on, make them better and sell them? Or are we not? You know, well, I was going to ask, um, Adam, I think it's probably unfair to ask you this question, but I think Glenn is a, is a season ticket holder and, and you know, myself as a fan fully justified. But yeah, you, you look at the Burnley game yesterday, there wasn't one academy player in the starting lineup, So that, that philosophy, that strategy has totally disappeared. Likewise, when we talk of disappeared, Les Reed has disappeared over the last couple of months. Ralph Kruger <laughs> has disappeared over the last couple of months. Adam Blackmore was talking about a fans forum in August. That's disappeared. In, in terms of a strategy... Pellegrino is obviously taking all of the um, I don't want to keep using the word abuse but that's probably what it is from fans about where are we going, our identity, what are we trying to do the, the, the board to me Glenn, seem like they need to come forward and actually work with the manager and say right this is what we're going to do, start communicating what the new owner wants to do because again we've not heard from him um, surely they deserve as much in inverted commas abuse as the manager's getting Well uh, Ralph turned up didn't he in the, um, in the summer um, after he'd done his ice hockey or whatever it was he, um, he did turn up and uh, make one statement but we've not heard from Les Reed and we've not heard from the new owner and we've not heard from Katharina Lieber other than saying you know she had the best interest of the club at heart with the sale going on and all that the new owner turned up more or less towards the end of the transfer window as far I might be wrong there but that's how I remember it anyway and it, it seemed like you know we were all waiting for us to sign a striker in the transfer window at the end of it and it didn't happen I wondered if the you know the new owner and the takeover kind of impacted that a little bit. Yeah, but w- you know where are where are these people? You know, it's all very well making self-congratulatory videos about about the academy and stuff like that, even though they're light-hearted and they they do a job. But you know, we make these videos which uh, try and paint us in a good light. But you know, things are not fantastic at first team level at the moment, and you know maybe we could do with uh, with hearing some. From some people because people are going to get fed up hearing from uh, Pellegrino and, and only him. So we're going to finish the podcast after all that with a look at the Liverpool game which is up after the international break. As a fan I'm fearing for us a little bit now in terms of the fixtures we got coming up between now and the New Year's we mentioned. Lalana is due to be back, I believe. Mane was back yesterday. It sounds like we're going to come up against Liverpool at the wrong time, Glenn. What are the odds that Virgil van Dijk picks up a little injury on international break? Yeah, I was thinking that. Um, yeah, we are playing Liverpool at the wrong time. Um, 
it's funny after last season where we had the four games and they didn't score against us which was obviously very cool for a number of reasons yeah I'd normally be looking forward to this one but I'm not <laughs> um but maybe it's a chance for you know Pellegrino to do what he's good at, which is to set up a team not to lose. Uh, if we go there and get a nil-nil draw, I'm sure everybody will be happy with it. I certainly will be. However, I'd say the chances of that are slim, especially if Mario Lamina's not fit. Um, so, yeah, I can't imagine them not scoring against us. And I cannot imagine us scoring against them, even though their defence is dodgy. I just don't think we'll commit enough players forward to force a mistake out of them. Adam, it would be typical Saints, wouldn't it, to go up there in uh, the current predicament and uh, win the game? Yeah, absolutely. It would be typical Saints. How many times have we seen it down the years? Backs to the wall and, and you think uh, all is doom and gloom and they, they produce something out of nothing. And let's be fair, Liverpool's been a bit of a happy hunting ground in terms of, well, certainly in terms of opposition and, and, and such like the last... Uh, couple of years for Saints, they've actually done pretty well. We all remember uh, all of the games against Liverpool last year. I agree that it's probably quite unlikely that the chances are that Liverpool would win. But with all that said, I I do think that Saints maybe will be a bit better playing away from home. I think actually being the team, uh, as Glenn sort of mentioned, that actually can put everybody behind the ball and you can go and be the organised team, the disciplined team, the team that don't need to necessarily show the attacking ambition yourself yep. that much, but can counter-attack. Actually, you know what? That's that's kind of what Saints are set up for now, which is part of the problem they've got, obviously, is that they haven't been playing teams, that they've played against teams that have wanted to do that to them. And then with seven games at home, the emphasis has generally been on them. Let's be fair, the game that they actually played that most effectively was the 1-0 defeat against Man United, who obviously were... Uh, are more cautious than most of the top six teams are. Mourinho's team is more cautious than the majority of them. But nonetheless, Saints played it pretty well. And yes, they came out on the wrong side yeah. of it, but they were widely praised and fairly so for the way they played. So maybe this is going to suit them. The problem is, for Saints, is uh, can you actually keep these teams out well, given the attacking talent that they've got at their disposal? That's going to be the question. I do believe, honestly, hand on heart, the Saints are actually... Their style is better equipped for them to face Liverpool than it is for them to face Burnley. But that doesn't mean that they're more likely to get a result against Liverpool necessarily, just because obviously Liverpool's quality of players is so much higher than Burnley's. Glenn, we always end our podcast with an ill-fated prediction, as I mentioned at the start. Saying that, Adam, I knew you weren't going to give it to me last week, but I did say reverse psychology that Burnley would win 2-1, so I am going to claim that as a half point. You did, and I went one all. Yeah, Um, you were wrong. So, uh, well, yes, I was wrong. But I was only one goal out, and you were two goals out. So who, who's more wrong? Come on then, Glenn. Come on then. Set us right. How are Saints going to get on at Liverpool? I'm going to be I'm going to be optimistic and go for nil nil. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone asks me to predict a Saints game, I always say nil nil now. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll take that, won't we? We take a point, as you say, Adam. Can you, well, can you, a point would be a good result. Yeah, take that. Can you do any better than that, Adam? Uh, to be honest with you, no. I <laughs> I suspect I think Saints will give a good account of themselves, a bit like they did against Man United and. Actually, against the majority of the big teams last year with Claude's uh, defensive counter-attacking style, let's not forget the Saints actually put in quite a few very, very creditable performances against the bigger teams. They generally obviously ended up losing all of them, but uh, they actually played quite well. And I had this suspicion that maybe it kind of might go that way again. It's hard to predict this far out because you just don't know what the state of the players is going to be like when they come back from international duty in terms of both teams. But... I think Saints will probably do quite well, but I suspect a Liverpool Liverpool victory, maybe 2-1, I think, perhaps. 
2-1. Good, I thought you were going to steal my prediction there. But yeah, I, I agree with Glenn. I reckon we're going to see Yoshida and Wesley Hoyt start at uh, Anfield. So I think that will be interesting to see how those two get on. Um, I've gone 2-0 Liverpool, I'm afraid. So yeah, I, I know you're expecting that, Adam. So. Yeah, I was expecting that. As I was. Good, I mean, you're... I don't know if this is reverse psychology anymore or, or, or how no, you no, think this that is works. Genuine. I don't I don't quite know. Yeah. This is genuine this yeah. one, so yeah. No, well I, I don't like to disappoint you, so yeah. To go to go full circle, I'd just like to point out that we got a point at Liverpool last year because Fraser Forster saved a penalty. Who's to say that's uh, he's not gonna pull out a great performance in that game. So Well I think Liverpool of all the teams that are up there, yeah, obviously Man United, as we said, are slightly more defensive, but in terms of the more teams with, a, with a, a wealth of attacking talent, which Liverpool do have, they're probably the most likely to potentially misfire on any given day, I would say. So yeah. th- there's there's some hope for Saints. It's not like if you go to Man City and you think, well, blimey, <laughs> it seems optimistic to think they're not going to score, given that they score against everybody. Um, with Liverpool, yes, you, you could you could be on the end of a, of a hiding if it, if it went badly for you and they had a great day. But they also have this tendency to kind of struggle a little bit, particularly when teams park the bus at Anfield, which is probably what Saints will attempt to do. So it's not beyond hope, I don't think, that they could get something. I think it's one of the, the, the games away against the top six. It's one of the ones that if you're going to get anything, I think this is one of the ones you'd fancy more than quite a lot of the others. So it's not beyond hope. But yeah, I started positive and I ended positive. Yeah, it's one of those games where, you know, if we can get to half-time at nil-nil, then there's there's a very real chance of getting to full time at nil nil. I think if we go down early, it could be horrible. Yeah. But then, having said that, I can't imagine us suddenly going, "Oh, we're one nil down. Let's throw caution to the wind and try and get back into it." I just hope we don't turn up with Plan A, which is defend the hell out of everything, and then go one nil down and stick to Plan A. I hope you found Total Saints Podcast 13 a good listen. One thing is for sure, when the results are bad, there is a heck of a lot more for us to talk about. So that's the one positive we can get out of it. My thanks to Adam and especially to Glenn for joining us. As mentioned earlier, you can find more of Glenn's work on his website, league1one-10.blogspot. So that's league1one-10.blogspot.co.uk. Enjoy the international break. We're going to take a week off. I think Adam and I both need uh, a bit of a rest, so we'll save you from having to listen to a podcast next week. We'll be back after the Liverpool game. Speak to you after that, and please, please, please try your best to keep marching in. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2 and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops, if we're stopping to get gas. 
You will be timed. <laughs> you will be <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.